Hi everyone, I'm Angelina with Team Rockin' Cushions, and this is episode two of the new Rockin' Talk season. Our guest for today is syndicated radio and MTV host, Matt Pinfeld. Michelle Vanderwater and her co-host, Allie, talk with Matt about his struggles with fame, addiction, and being a legend in the music industry. We hope you enjoy learning about the defining moments of his music career. We are live! Hi, everyone! Welcome to Rock and Talk. I am so excited today. Ali Cat has joined us. Hi, everyone! Hi, Ali Cat! My special guest tonight is Matt Hinfeld, who is, I'm sure everybody watching this already knows who you are, so you're gonna do that, you're gonna do a better introduction than I am. But he is a legend in the music business. Um, syndicated TV radio host, author, and author and magic maker. We have so much to talk about. Yes, we do. <laughs> Thank Yay! you for joining us. This is one of Matt, Matt's favorite songs, and I just happen to be wearing a Dairy Boy t shirt. Matt, tell us why this is one of your favorite songs. Oh, I can tell you why. Well, actually, it's the first song I ever heard by David Bowie when I was a kid, right? So I was a kid, I was in junior high, very beginning of junior high, like, you know, and um, I heard it on the radio, and it said, Hot Tramp, I Love You So, and I thought, wow, that's about sex, that's great, and when you're a kid, you're like, it's cool, it's risque, but I loved it. So anyway, so I heard when I was David Bowie, and I went out and got that album for my birthday, I had to buy three albums, and that was one of the albums that I bought with Diamond Dogs, and then, once I got that, I fell in love with that record. I went back and bought Ziggy Stardust and Hunky Glory and became a big Bowie fanatic, you know, most of my life and amazingly got to work with him uh, and directly become friendly with him and it was pretty amazing, you know, become us friends uh, and it was, I just had some incredible experiences with him that were like those pinch me moments in your life. So, I but you, oh, okay. Go ahead, go ahead. No, but I was going to say, the funny thing about Rubble Rubble that's really funny is my first band that I was in in junior high school, um, okay, in my junior, well, not your junior year, I guess your eighth grade year, was they were rehearsing this band in town, and I, I heard about it, so they said, oh, you want to come by? And they had a different singer at the time, and they were doing Rebel Rebel, and I said, uh, I can do that song. And then I went up, and I sang the song, and then they looked at the other guy and said, he's our singer now. You're going to be our manager. So then I took over a single back then. And then, you know, like from there on in, we were doing Bowie covers. And we did Suffrage City. And we did Band Company and Aerosmith. And all that stuff when we were, when we were kids. Uh, so Rebel Rebel's got a really special place in my heart. And when you asked me about that today, I loved your, I was admiring your Bowie shirt, Allie. And I uh, told you that that was around the time of The Man Who Fell to Earth, Station to Station, After Young Americans. When Bowie was, event, he was having a really rough time here in the city of Los Angeles, mm -hmm. it was a tough uh, time for, for him. That's why he went to Berlin to kind of you know, clean up his act a bit. But yeah, he still put out great records. I don't care, you know. He, Station to Station came out of that, and I mean that record's phenomenal. So yeah, it I didn't, didn't stunt his no, his, uh, it didn't. I, and I, I, I'm a I'm a David Bowie fanatic, so and a lot of people know this. Um, I have David Bowie stuff all over my house. I I just think. You know, his concert, if I could, you know, have the one uh, that I could see in my lifetime uh, would be uh, 1973 Ziggy Stardust and the Fall and Rise of the Spider of Mars. 
I don't, I just would love to see him in that action and that in that you know character. Um, he's amazing. But um, yay! I'm so excited. So we played here in town. You know at Santa Monica Civic Center. Oh wow! It was a big bootleg. It was the end of '72, and it was a bootleg I had as a kid. And for me, like you know, everything in LA was like a million miles away from New Jersey and New York. So I. Uh, that's, like, uh, that's why you grew up in Jersey? Yeah, New Jersey, yeah. yeah. So that was the thing. But I remember buying that bootleg album of the Ziggy Tour and listening to it like, and observing every moment of it. And So I, I agree with you, Ali. We, I, that's my the show that I wish we'll I had We'll go seen. together. Yeah. We gotta, when we get a time machine. We got to figure that out. Yeah. I mean, there's some, some, uh, some logistics we'll have to do. Yeah. But I am down. I'll, I, I could uh, totally wear some bell bottoms and uh, put some face paint on and hit that show. Yeah. Some big old one of those those big pumpy shoes that they wore. The. Oh, you mean you mean the uh, yeah. The platform. Platform yeah, shoes. Platform. <laughs> platform shoes. So we're so, we're so excited. So Matt Matt and me have go, go way way back, and I am just we we hang out all the time, and we're we're just buddies. We're close. I love. I love him. I love his story. I love, and I think what I what we do and we always do is we bond so much over music, and that's the thing that I, I Matt is just this wealth of knowledge. I thought I was good, but my God, he knows. He's like, well, that second trumpet player on that song on the B side, well, 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 remember was so and so, and I was like, no, <laughs> I don't even know. So. Um, history with music and when did you become such a fanatic and 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 was there anybody in your life that inspired you with with your falling in love with music I, you know I, I i can only really remember back to when i was three years old which is a long time <laughs> yeah, so yes. you know so I, like yeah so i think mine was at two or one and but half. you know we had uh moved i was born in athens georgia you know the, this rem b-52s are yeah, and right. i had um we had moved. My father was a school teacher. He had been in the military. He had been a Marine officer. He fought in the Korean War. But then he had a health issue, so he got an honorable discharge, went back to college, went to uh, uh, University of Georgia. So that's why I was born in Athens, Georgia. Um, and then eventually moved to New Jersey, where he was a teacher. He taught physics because he was a really brilliant guy. And he was always cool and supportive of my love for music, which was incredible because, you know, sometimes people are pushing their kids to do other things. Certainly, I played baseball and wrestled and Football, small for a football player, but I did it anyway. Um, but I couldn't wait to get home when the game, when that was over. I go, just want to get back to my stereo, man, and listen to music. So, That's awesome. but at three years old, you know, we had this record player, which uh, for those people watching, you know, you know, you know, it's a turntable, vinyl turntable, but it was one that dropped the little records, the forty fives, and we bought it used from a neighbor because my parents didn't have much money. You know, my mom was a stay at home mother of three, uh, and it's we we bought used forty fives, so or she'd take me to the store. And like the records that were not hits anymore, they would sell them for a nickel or a dime at, the, at this five and 10 store. And so I would get like, you know, Isley Brothers, Twist and Shout and Weird records that were, you know, it was just crazy. So that's my earliest memory, sitting listening to Beatles and Supremes, Dinah Ross and Supremes and like Motown and that stuff when I was a really little boy and just loving music and just, you know, my, my head was in it from the time I was a child. That's awesome. So your parents kind of helped with that by supporting that and having the final and all that kind of. My my parents were like that too. My mom was absolutely in love with rock and roll. I mean, she even would tell us the history behind it. it that was how I grew to fall so much in love. My dad was like the country dude, Hank Williams, and you know Anne Murray. <laughs> I remember. Yeah, Snowbird. Yeah, I don't know what all these things I need to listen to, but 
<laughs> you know, he was always like, you know, Hank Williams Jr. stuff like that. But he listened to also listened to Billy Joel, which I I I, I fell on Billy Joel. Um, so um, tell us about that aha moment. When was that music moment for you when you realized you wanted to have a career in this? And how did you choose the DJ route for for you? You know, I um I knew I wanted to be a, a you know a, a disc jockey at a very young age because I was in love with radio and I just was fascinated. And I was just loved songs so much. I mean, I didn't have enough money to buy every 45 or hit record that came on the radio, like most kids don't. But I mean, I, I would get, when I got, you know, literally when I could actually work at like the age of 9, 10, 11, deliver papers or, or uh, mow lawns, I would put, spend all that money on, on records. But I knew that I, I fell in love with radio because that was my go-to thing. That's the thing that gave me the most enjoyment and comfort. And I used to love to sing along with the radio uh, even in the back in the days, I remember hot summers singing through a fan to get the echo in the <laughs> room because there was no air conditioning. We're yeah, that's 60s, awesome. Right? So it was like we're I'm singing through the room to get that extra sound. But you know, radio was one of those things. So I I knew what I wanted to do very at a very young age, and I got lucky enough that at the age of ten, there was a, I would call up and bother a local DJ, this guy named Rich Phoenix, who but it was so wonderful. He came to my book signing in New Jersey, in Jersey City. When my when my, my memoir came out, uh, and I think it's just you know it's a wonderful thing that it's come full circle and that I stay in touch with him you know because uh, he's elderly now but he was amazing he was so nice to me that I would call him and bother him on the phone because it was fascinating ask him questions about music and area and he was he would give me the time to talk to me a ten year old kid nine year old kid so at ten years old I was getting dropped off by my parents in the city of New Brunswick which was very dangerous at that. Oh. Years later, I ended up DJing there for years and you know being on a college radio station. But um, and he dropped me off at night because he was like night DJ, and let, and I would go up and I'd sit in and watch him spin when I was ten years old, and that was, you know, he was just so kind to me. So he was a definite like early mentor. This guy named Rich Phoenix, and you know, and I listened to all the New York DJs that were there. But it was it was really it was also about the records because I just love songs and I love to sing. Uh, and I had an older brother and sister who were also amazing because they had record collections. You know, my sister was really into The Doors and Crosby, Stills and Nash, and my brother was into like you know, Beatles, Stones, uh, you know, just all that stuff. And then, you know, and then my you know my brother and sister, you know, we I guess would steal all their records. And then my brother's first wife uh, from his first marriage, they were living with us at the time, and she gave me her entire set forty five collection, and Ooh. she had every single from the 1960s. So she just passed it on to me. So I just absorbed this collection of, of 45s and just, that was how I educated myself on That's that stuff. Amazing. Yeah. So that is, so that is kind of, well, that was your foray into, so what was your first job? Well, my first job was under the table. I mean, besides mowing lawns and throwing papers. Uh, you mean my first, first DJ? <laughs> oh, well, you know, here's the thing. It's really an interesting story because, you know, I did college radio at Rutgers University, but my first DJ pay job was DJing in a strip club uh, and the drinking age was 18 and spinning records uh, on Route 18 in East Brunswick. It's in my book. There's an interesting story about that. And then I moved to spinning at clubs, and I was spinning at clubs. The drinking age was 18 still. It was the 80s. It was New Wave era. You know, it was, it was during New Wave with, like, you know, everything you would imagine, like, you know, Cure, Adam and the Ants, Depeche Mode, Yeah, Soft Cell, uh, you know, uh, all that. And, and also Michael Jackson and Prince were out at the time. 
so it was, uh, that's, I was spinning in clubs and that was how I was supporting myself. And I was spinning in clubs like through that entire time. And I did that for years. In fact, I, when I, I was, that was how I was supporting myself until I got a full-time radio job because I did part-time radio from 1984 to 1990 uh, at this radio station in New Jersey, but after I did college radio. And then all of a sudden I became music director there. And that's when other people in the industry figured out who I was. Oh. When, I was when I was helping prick the music and playlists for a radio station and programming it. And then I became program director. I won a couple of national awards back to back, music director of the year nationally. And then, then MTV found out about me and it was amazing. I, but I love that radio station. It was on the Jersey Shore, like in the Asbury Park Market, HTG. So there's just like this whole, you know, it just kind of, it was an interesting trajectory and ride, but it, it brought me to MTV in, in uh, the 90s. But, wow. You know, it was incredible. And I just, I still love radio. I'm still doing radio. In January, I've been doing radio for, are you guys ready? Uh, 37 years. Wow. 37 years I've been professionally doing radio. Wow. Almost, you know, almost very rarely unemployed, which is very good. Uh, especially in this day and age, it's a rough time for, for yeah. the out there. People are struggling during this pandemic. Yes. There's so many friends I love and people are losing jobs. Oh. I have a syndicated radio show that I've been doing for 10 years called Flashback, which is on about 100 radio stations in the U.S. and Canada. And um, I'm very grateful to still have that show and I enjoy doing it. It's on every week. So what was your first big interview that was kind of a wow, I am interviewing this person and how did that, or a band, and how did that go for you? Oh, uh, well, you know, it's really funny. There's a couple of different ways you can look at that. I mean, I, I love this band called The Jam. Who, oh, yeah. You know, and, you know, uh, so Paul Weller was a, was a big one for me. And became style counsel after that. Yeah, became style yeah. counsel, you're right. And then, of course, love I was the father. Yeah, which is great stuff. Yeah. And so Paul, I brought a tape recorder to his show. This wasn't the first, the first one I did when I, like, I totally faked, you know how you gotta fake it till you make it? I remember Billy Squire. I'm still was, doing that, by the way, Yeah. People. Hey, Billy Squire was in a band called Piper, right? And oh, I loved them. Love so Billy Squire. I got in touch with this PR person, and I said, oh, I'm working on this book. You know, I'm a kid in, I mean, you know, in high school. And they're like, oh yeah, who's in it? I said, Pete Townsend. Of course, I was bullshitting. I was completely lying. It was a totally. Yeah. And so then I went, they go, oh, you can go interview him. Go to his apartment in New York City. So it was before he blew up as a solo artist. But he had me at his apartment. I'm just taping him with a tape recorder because I wanted to learn how to do it. And then college radio interviewed everybody from Black Flag to, you know, uh, the Sidewalk Firms. I mean, there were so many people. But the Paul Weller one from the jam when I was 18, I was, uh, I had gone to see a couple of shows, snuck backstage um, and in New York City. And they were playing the next night in New Jersey, Turner Moore Memorial, Memorial. I didn't have tickets. I was on college radio. I went down there with my tape recorder. I was really cottonmouth. I was nervous. But I went down, I interviewed Paul, and after the interview, he goes, how you going to the show tonight? And I'm like, oh, no, I, I didn't have any tickets. <laughs> I go, and he goes, oh, we got, we got you covered. And his father was the manager, John Weller. So then the next thing you know, I meet these other people that are these mods that are like following him around, and they, they the jam invites us back to their hotel rooms, and we're like watching videos of them on American TV shows on this VHS player and having pizza with the jam. Oh. And at the time, Paul wasn't drinking. Uh, you know, he'd gotten, because he'd been doing a lot of speed, and then he decided that he wasn't going to drink for a while. Sure, now he has one here and there, but um, at the time, he, he just wanted to concentrate on the music. So it was an incredible time. So I'm calling in sick to work at the strip club because I'm like, 
Yeah, I got I got to do something else with school today, and it's just I don't know. The jammer offered to put give me a seat for the show, and literally they walked me up. And my friends, there's friends in the audience, and I walked up and I walked right up to the second row and right in the center, one seat. And then I was like, it was incredible. And it was the wow. fourth show I saw on that tour for the Gift, their final tour. So that was the first one that really blew me away. Wow. You know. Of, of you know, and it's incredible now. Of thousands. Of thousands. And thousands, thousands and thousands. Yeah. So um, when you got that call from MTV, obviously that was a big step for you. Like you were going to be uh, in front. I mean, because always for them, you were behind the mic, right? Nobody was really recording or seeing you at that. Point. Um, it's really interesting how it happened with, with MTV because at first they put me on the air with the Pesh Mode. Um, <gasps> so that I was great, and that was you know. And although I had like been there for a bunch of MTV things I was doing, I was there because I was invited to do a bunch of stuff like, you know, people like Kurt Steffick, who was the one who, you know, recommended me for the uh, 120 minutes mm -hmm. uh, job and then introduced me. I knew, you know, I knew Louis Largent from radio yeah. who was there and then I got to meet Andy Schoen. Uh, that's not how that whole thing transpired. But yeah, I, I filled in with Depeche Mode and they loved the job that I did. But at that, later on, they decided that they were going to put Lewis on the show because he was vice president of programming and they wanted to give him a higher profile. I thought, at that point, I was getting the show because they invited me up and I'm like, oh shit, maybe they're going to give me the show. So my heart dropped when I, when I go, oh, well, you should use the backup, but Lewis is going to do the show. Hey, but, but, but from what I heard from everybody else, they don't usually call you back at all. So uh -huh. the fact that they brought me up there. But I stayed in touch with them, and all of a sudden there was an opening in in, uh, in the programming of music department where, when MTV was, you know, really it was the big, most influential pop culture oh, music God. culture yeah, in the world. Yeah. So there were ten people in that department, and there was uh, an opening in position number eight, like or seven or eight, which is you know, and so as manager of music programming, they interviewed me, and they, I got the job, and it was crazy because. I interviewed for the job. I was, they were trying to call the radio station that I was at, HCG, great radio station, Jersey Shore. Uh, but we were in this, the radio station, even though people thought it was this huge thing, unless they came to pick up tickets, didn't realize it was in a house. It was a commercial station, but it's in a house. And the owner's there, lives there with their cats. And there's an AM and FM station. And uh, you have to do the, there's only three phone lines, and they go down to the basement where the production room's here, the sales office is here, and then where I stick everything so people don't steal all the giveaways. They're like under in her basement. It was, that, it was it's classic. It's just there, there's a movie about that radio station someday. Um, and uh, all the numbers are busy because everybody's working. I'm like, oh no, and he's gonna call. He's gonna change his mind. Oh no, you know, like and I'm like I was worried because there was no way he could get through on the phones, and I of course couldn't tell them, hey, I'm waiting for this call because I'm interviewing for this job to leave the station. Two hours later, the phone rings. And I go, uh, hello, HCG. And uh, Andy goes, hey, Matt, it's Andy Schoen, man. I've been trying to call you for two hours. Jeez. I'm like, oh, Andy, I'm sorry, man. I, I, uh, we only have three phone lines here. And he goes, well, I'll tell you what. Come work for me at MTV, and I'll give you more to the three phone lines. And that was the line that I'll never forget, and that changed my life forever. Because what happened was I'd already been on the air with Depeche Mode hosting the show. Uh, but then I was hired behind the scenes. So I was... But it was amazing. That's where my friendship, I you know, kicked that up, friendship up with David Bowie, and then all these other people. And I was working behind the scenes, and eventually, a few months later, they were like, "You know, you were pretty good that time. We're gonna put you on for three weeks because Lucy didn't want to do the show anymore. He kept saying, no, put me, put Matt on the show.'" 
He goes, I want to do it. I want Matt to, you know. So they go, you got three weeks. And after the first night, which was with Oasis, uh, they came up and said to me, we've done a complete 180. The show is yours. <laughs> and it was like, because they loved it. Because I was like so comfortable by that time. Like when I first went on with Depression Mode, you know, I was good, but I'd never been on television before, ever. I had no television training. I just went there from gut, from the feeling, the love of music. And just, you know, that's what I brought with me. And I did, I, you know, I took a shot at it. But when, by this time, you know, I was so comfortable from being in the studio all the time with other artists and taking care of the artists as they come in for their interviews and for the other shows that I was like, hey, I already got a great job here. So if it doesn't work out, I still work behind the scenes here and that's cool enough for me. And then all of a sudden that turned into, that three shows turned into that show. And then they did a ratings check and I came up with this high Q rating with a lease burn of a VJ. And, and like they were, I remember the guys from Young TV Raps going to me, and Abby, like I'm walking down the hall and they go, hey man, dude, you know, you know the black and, and, and Spanish community are feeling you, man. They go, yeah. Which is very cool. And I love that I said that. That's awesome, you know. Because I think people like genuine. The fact that it was genuine and they knew you were knowledgeable and you were real. Yeah, you know. And I'm not saying that anybody performed you wasn't. I'm just saying, you know, I couldn't be anything but I, but I am. And that's a yeah. short, bald guy who loves music and... Uh, and well, that's what I am. I you know, I look like you're the guy next door. Yeah. Well, you don't really to. look like my guy next door, but yeah. um, but uh, uh, you know, I think that it, it really is a plus. You have a personality that probably just really shine, and I, and you know, a lot of people are uh, do interviews and stuff like that. But there are some people that just really stick out, and why you go back to them over and over and over. What was it like for you the moment you, the the cameras turned on and then you were there. That was you. Was that like a, ooh. No, you know, it's really weird. I kind of like, I use the fact that I've done radio for so long. Uh, well, at that time it hadn't been that long. Uh, but I, I use the fact that I used to do being on the radio every day to just kind of do that in a, more, in a more visual way. It was about being comfortable with your skin in front of the camera itself. But I didn't think about it too much. I just tried... You know, because I, I depended on my knowledge of the music mm -hmm. to just and to just be myself in the delivery of what I did, and I figured I, I you know, like I, I trusted in that, and uh, and, it, and you know, it was it was unbelievable. I remember I remember when I went in for the audition, and I was really speaking of being cottonmouth during a Weller interview when I was eighteen. I was I was cottonmouth then too. I went in for an audition, and they were like, you know, well, why should you be doing this? Side? I was like, oh, because I did this because I'm. I've done this radio thing. I won these awards, and I'm, on, I'm in a nightclub, and I spin on this radio scene, blah, blah, And, yeah, I remember, and then I did test breaks where I'm introducing videos there. And uh, and I watched them back, and they were they were, they were pretty good, considering. You yeah. Know I mean? But, I mean, you know, I never really, I always, I never sat, I always got past that thing of, oh, shit, I'm on camera. I never fucking worried about it. It's, I'm pretty... It's the same thing with like when I can walk out on stage at Madison Square Garden or Giant Stadium and introduce a band. And I just yeah. Like, I almost, you know, I, it just. I know. I, I have the same feeling. I've never, as I, as you know, I interview and host and, and get up and, and do uh, uh, big shows and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, you put a lot of things together. And, yeah, I do. You know? <laughs> but, it, but yeah, and it's never, I've never had that panic moment. Like, I, I, you know, like I've heard from people get panicked before they go out or something or another. And I'm always interested when I'm doing stuff with really large artists, how they'll say they still get nervous before they go out on stage. And I'm like amazed at that kind of stuff. Tell me about some one of the most maybe you have an uh, one of the most awe inspiring interviews that you ever did, and then we'll flip it and you can tell me about one of the craziest ones. 
Oh, there's many. I mean, well, I mean, I'm very blessed. You know, I love to interview Paul McCartney uh, because, you know, I mean, he's probably the most famous man in music history. Uh, and he's a gentleman, and he's really great. So working with him was amazing. Doing all the Rolling Stones because it was, you know, it was, well, of course, minus Bill Wyman because he loved the band, but with, with four of the other Rolling Stones uh, in about 2003 or four for the Bigger Bang album. They had not done an interview in 35 years altogether, and they haven't done one since where they're all in the same place. Oh, wow. So that was an incredible experience for me. Um, Pete Townsend, I mean, it's just been, but Bono from U2 and The Edge. God, done, can you, know, you imagine So I've done, I've done, I've done, and I've done a lot of these people multiple times, so I've been very, very blessed. Uh, the craziest interview was probably Evan Dando from the Lemonheads, because I think oh, he was I totally tripping. That. Yeah. I think he was on acid or something that day, so I was just trying to follow his thought pattern, and that was, and you know, he's, literally before the pandemic, every time I see him, he's like, wow, dude, man, I'm sorry about that time. I'm like, dude, it's okay, it's been a long time ago, it's all good now, you know what I mean? But he felt bad because like it was, it, it was, he was out there that night. Yeah, I've, had that, I've done those that. interviews too, where you know <laughs> they're not in the room anymore. Yeah. Crazy. Oh, my funnest editor, I think one of the funnest ones was on the Snoop Dogg, uh, Snoop Dogg on his tour bus. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember. Walked, yeah, I walked out of there needing a very large extra pepperoni loaded. Uh, or, <laughs> uh, you know, it was really funny. When, when NWA did their real reunion on Farm Club, my TV show, me and uh, Dre and Andy Shion and Jimmy Iovino were all standing outside, and Ali Landry, who uh, mm -hmm. was my co-host, and we're all standing outside Universal Studios outside Snoop's dressing room, and they were just waiting for him to finish smoking. Oh <laughs> like my God. Half hour. And I remember I went in there, go, maybe I'll go talk to him. It'll come out. Like, yeah, you I'm can't coming. see him in there. Coming, you couldn't see him. was like, I'm coming, and I'm like, yeah, I guess that didn't do too much good. But <laughs> 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 still, was cool. I mean, he's like, I'm coming, and it's like. So that's why I know now I knew why Dre didn't go in there and say, "Hey, you want to go?" But then, because yeah. first of all, it wasn't live, so it was okay. So we, uh, you know, and Snoop filled in for Easy E. That <gasps> so, I love, love, love so Easy E. Cool, you know. Well, so uh, quick at about new, knew I had to be in Compton soon. I had to get drunk and the day before I'm on the stuff. About my friends. Sorry, I had to grow off there. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you did. It was cool that you did that. You know, Farm Club that show that I did. 2000-2001 was great because we had Wu-Tang all played, NWA got back together. That show was so cool because it was so many different people. You know, like Beyonce with Destiny's Child performed on the show. We had so many people's first performances, like Nelly's. Like, I mean, it was a pretty it was a pretty incredible show. And then, you know, a ton of, a ton of alternative artists, mm -hmm. everybody, dance artists. That show was, Farm Club was really fun to do. Uh, yeah. You know? And that's when I lived out here in Los Angeles the first time. Uh, but I gotta say that that's what it reminds me of because you were talking about NWA, uh, and I love them. Oh, I mean, just hip hop is my, you know, obviously public enemy, and you know, yeah. uh, uh, I mean, I'm just a big, big, big fan of hip hop. I love yeah. you Chuck know. Dees and, and well, Chuck Deeds amazing. I mean, I got to work for him. I mean, he's utterly outstanding. Um, you know, um, I I love. I mean, I, I I love a lot of genres of music. I'm not one of those that only have a few genres. I am all over the board. One day I listen to classic rock and new wave or indie. You know, I've discovered some amazing artists when I was doing South by Southwest earlier this year and booking for my show. I discovered some amazing artists, new artists that I absolutely love and still listen to. In fact, one of them uh, is a band called Beachling. Is was one of my top five listened to songs all year. Which you know, it's funny. They played my a showcase that I did a couple years back, and I love them because they're from 
Philadelphia, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, and they're just such a great band. I love the Beach Sound. They're one of they sound like the replacements meets a bunch of other things. They have something great about they them. They have, they have, and they also have this song Tommy in the '80s. I mean, it's yeah. like it just sounds like it was an '80s song. Yeah, um, and um, and it just. It was just a great, I mean, like, you know, like, have you, is there any new bands that you are digging right now? We talk a lot about old bands, but what are you digging now? Oh, I listen, any new discoveries? Uh, there's always something new. I love this band uh, that's been out recently from LA called Teenage Wrist, mm -hmm. that I think are really great. My last, my favorite band of the last, you know, five or six years is Royal Blood. Oh, you know? I love, love Royal Blood. So they're, you know, I mean, I just, they're two guys. Uh, you know, uh, Mike and Ben, and, and, yeah. and the one guy sings and Mike and, and plays a bass through a bunch of pedals and he's just, they're just amazing. They can pull it off live. I mean, you know, playing Glastonbury or Reading or any festival or, you know, uh, they were, they were just, they played Lollapalooza and they, they, kill, they killed the crowd. They loved oh, yeah. But, uh, but there's always something new. Like, I'm always looking for, for new stuff to check out, you know? And, and there's a lot of cool young artists out there, you know, like Youngblood and Grandson and people like that that I really like. They're, you know, so there's, for me, there's always something and, you know, um, you know, I just, I just am always looking for new music, and, and and you know, listen, it's funny. There's a lot of new music out there. There are some really great young creative new artists. Oh my god! I mean, it's always something good. To me, you never, I never stop looking for new music. Uh, I'm never want to get stuck in one one thing, or because you know, the minute that you, I, I just ne could never see myself being that person who goes, "There's no good music anymore," and you know, you. Oh, that's all this stuff. That's, you know, there's always great creative stuff. There's creative minds, young minds out there that are creating great music. It's just a matter of finding it. There's a lot more, put it this way, there's a lot more static out there now because it's that much easier to produce music yourself and get it out there. And there's that access to everything. Um, but, you, I mean, there's still great stuff. You just have to dig a little bit harder or find places where it's curated correctly. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, for me, I mean, I'm always looking for music because I'm always booking so many things. And during during this uh, this uh, pandemic, I booked a bunch of fe festivals and and and, and uh, uh, shows. And I'm always constantly finding new artists, you know. And still, I'm still continuing uh, continuing to book. Um, so I'm that's for me. And and then especially with my festivals and stuff, you know. Uh, all I do is look for, listen to new music, and I think you know when people. You're right. A lot of people just say there's nothing good anymore, and I just don't absolutely believe that. Yeah. I think that there's so many great artists coming out, and hope, and certainly during the pandemic, I've seen some great creativity going on with that. You know, I mean, you, you know, one of my favorite songs of the year is by uh, this DJ uh, Rez from Canada, and Grabbits, I guess, is the guy in the song called uh, "Someone Else," and it's very almost gothy electronic that goes into kind of a dance thing, but it's, I love this song. You know, Travis Barker's working with this artist, like poor Stacy, uh, and uh, who, had, you know, and, and just, there's there's just a ton of new things coming out. I'm always, I, you know, I, I, I constantly go through music playlists of new releases to find things that I find interesting. You yeah. Know? I mean, it's important to do so. And people still send me a lot of music. They find me on social media and send me their music, and I love that, because I hear find things that, where they, and then I can kind of sometimes advise them, well, you know, you really should put this, make sure that Apple Music or Amazon Music or Spotify or everybody has your thing and try to, you know, guide people when I can. And I'm very, you know, honest and open with them, but I think it's super important. 
Yeah. I mean, I, look, a lot of, there's been a lot, I mean, especially, you know, discovering music and stuff like, and, and, and the male to female ratio, I've give, been sent so much great music from, uh, from women, you know, because I know that you heard a lot of that complaints at festivals, not enough, you know, whatever, men or more men or whatever. And um, yeah, look at Phoebe Bridgers. She's Phoebe Bridgers is great. She's great from There's a new artist coming out of Universal, Carly Gaber. That's super yeah. awesome. JJ Wild. Oh man, I love JJ. She was on my. She was on my um, uh, showcase for South by Southwest. The one we were gonna. I was gonna host. You were you. gonna host my showcase <laughs> exactly. Right. So I, I mean, like, it I was involved with Whole Foods, right? It was at it was at Whole Foods. We uh, we yeah. raised money for their Whole Planet Foundation. Yeah, had a great lineup, including Soul had, Asylum and a bunch of other bands. Yeah, this year. we were so psyched about it. And we it was, were. It was heartbreaking. Bands from everywhere. In fact, bands from Australia, bands from New Zealand. We had bands from all over the world on yeah. there. Yeah, but these are. I mean, like, I, I I'm just so impressed with the music coming out. You know, today because it, it goes back to that thing where I've heard it from a lot of people. I don't feel like anything good is coming out, but that's not true. You're just not looking in the right places. That's what it is. Yeah. Don't expect it, you know, to hear it on, um, you know, you can go to great places. If you like rock, you can go to my my my, uh, my dear friend, sister, uh, Allie Hagendorf, Allison Hagendorf. Yes. And she has a, a podcast now on the, on Spotify that's named after the playlist that she I saw when she was called, doing that. It was awesome. Rock This, and she's got Machine Gun Kelly coming up this week in the yeah. interview. It's incredible. It's like, he's like, it's 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 really great. And she's been doing that now for I think the past five or six 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 weeks or so. But that's a really great place to find out about new music on, on uh, those. I mean, there are people have shows everywhere. You know what I mean? There's uh, you know you've got Zane Lowe and people over at uh, over at uh, Apple and yeah. But Allison's playlist is incredible and in her and uh, her show. So uh, that's one place to find out about new music. There's always and you know of course you know there's still places like Alt Nation and Sirius XMU and then. You know, there's specialty shows that are on these, uh, you know, Pat Corbett here in Los Angeles. Yeah. I mean, you know, everybody's doing something. Um, but there's there's always ways. But you kind of, you do, you have to do the work. You can't expect it to fall in your lap. Because mainstream music is really kind of, it's narrow, in a narrow lane right now. And that's not to say that somebody like Harry Styles doesn't make great music. Cause, but I'm saying it's, because he has some, there's songs on his album that are actually really, that aren't singles that are actually really great. Uh, but and, uh, but I'm saying that if you're looking in the pop lane, you're not going to find new stuff that leans in the alternative world. Right. And even on the alternative stations, there's a whole, you know, like the, it's the sound is is in a very uh, one one real direction right now. So there's a bunch of other things. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's just it is what it is. You know, um, there's a lot of great music, but there's I mean I think if you really want to, you got to explore like. It's just like you would see well, when we when I had explored as a kid, that meant going to a record store and seeing an album. Yeah, we got we get we get we get spoiled nowadays, right? Yeah. We don't have to, you know. Go, I, but I mean, but I also do miss that, like going inside a record store and plowing through. I mean, we still have some great records. I mean, yeah. we have I great still, record stores in LA. I still support all the independent record stores, but I but I do love streaming. I'm not gonna lie. I mean, I have my record collection. I still have a lot of my CDs. But there's nothing, I, I love to stream and I love to make playlists. And, oh, I make playlists all the time. Best, I said, you guys know? need a playlist for yeah. me from new artists, hit me up. But I still... I constantly send them out to people. You got And that's what you do. It's fun. Yeah. You for your friends. But there's, uh, again, there's there's great music out there. You just have to have to search for it. So tell us about your book that you wrote. Yes! You know, thank you for asking about that, Michelle. <laughs> I, you know, because um, <laughs> it's really, it's fantastic that it um, got re-released during the pandemic. Um, I had been, you know, 
I brought in Judd Apatow, and he had said that he had loved the book and that he loved the stories in the book, and the word got out, and they found out about that, I think, at Simon Schuster. This is my guess. I guessed that it was because of what Judd Apatow said. Um, and all of a sudden, it was back on, the, the paperback was back on the schedule, and I'm like, wow, because the original book came out in September of... Uh, of 2016. And is it a memoir? Or is it's it a memoir, yeah. From it's, a, it's all about, like, you know... From, I have it. From being a child, yeah. <laughs> you signed it for me. Yeah, she's great. You know, it's, I, I'm grateful that I got the opportunity to write it. Simon Schuster and Scribner, the publishers, who are, you know, were uh, at confidence in us doing this book, and, and it's great, and we got some incredible endorsements. And, you know, I did somewhat of a book tour the first time around, but I had just started a new job doing mornings on the radio in San Francisco, so I couldn't do a real full-on book tour. I had to go on weekends and just a few of the things on the days that came out and do a bunch of radio shows. And But, you know, the book was a, was a great experience for me. It, it starts with me being a kid in front of that record. I love that. the way you started off. You're just a tiny little toddler discovering music. And the Beatles. And, and oh, and the Beatles. I mean, it's a yeah. beautiful way it starts. It, it really is. Talking about your experiences uh, throughout the way. I love, and, I love the story. Yeah, you know, and the book's named after the song The Killers that Brennan, Brennan Flowers wrote about me. Uh, the night that he met me, and uh, the, songs, the book's called All These Things That I've Done. Uh, and then it has two subtitles that they came up with that I'm like, that title's a little long, but <laughs> I know, it's cool with all these things I've done. It's called, then it says, My Insane Improbable Rock Life, which is a pretty good description. And then it says MTV and Music and Mayhem, which is a pretty, pretty good description too. But they came up with that. Yes. But all these things that I've done because this it's song. for a good Google search. Yeah. <laughs> it's in the Killers Wikipedia page too about that. But it was an incredible thing. So to get to write the um, to write that book was uh, it was amazing. But I mean, today's the two year anniversary of when I was hit by a car and nearly killed. So that's there's a whole there's more chapters now. Right. You know, this, and this latest uh, my battle with alcoholism during the pandemic and the fact that I'm sober seven months now um, is uh, is pretty amazing. I'm feeling Congratulations. great. Thank you. Yeah. So it's like you know I. I there's, there's definitely more stuff. There's a book two in there somewhere. But I was really grateful to have the opportunity to write the book. And uh, so I'm really happy that they re-released it. And, you know, it's not audible, but it's not me reading it. You can get, it was on books on CD. It's a guy who reads the James Patterson like novels. Uh, and it was because I was so busy with doing two syndicated radio shows, my morning show, and tracking the night show in Wait, San Francisco. Who should you gotten to read that? That guy, the guy that, oh, man. Uh, well, it wasn't my choice, but I, I was supposed read to read it. it. You well, read it yeah. I was supposed He's an to actor that is yeah. always reading stuff. Well, why oh, Peter I... Coyote? No, no, Peter Coyote. No, I'm saying he always does the PBS. Not Sam, he does not Sam Jackson. Um, he, he's, yeah. They're kind of like in the same stuff. What about Freeman? Yeah. Morgan Freeman! Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Morgan Freeman yes. talking about punk rock would be pretty funny. Yes, yeah. so he could have done the audible for you. He's got an iconic voice. He's He's great. Um, so is Samuel Jackson, too. Yeah, I love those guys. Anyway, I, I didn't have time to do it. I had to drop something, and I couldn't, under contractual obligations to those radio shows. So I only, I had to, like, tell them, I can't, I'm not going to have time to read it, because you have to sound the same throughout the book, too. And because I was getting up at 4 in the morning doing a morning show, you, you know, depending on the weather in San Francisco, man, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's a matter of dampness. Your voice sounds different. Yes. Yeah. And how much sleep you get also affects you. Yeah, that's amazing. And whether you were drinking the night before. Um, yeah, we were just talking about that because yeah. we were talking about the. Di uh, we were somebody else was we were we were talking about. I think it was on a panel or something talking about how drugs and alcohol changes your voice. Yeah, and that is incredible to me because I 
you it's a I think one of the most prolific artists that you notice it on is certainly Steven Tyler when he sings Dream On and he's on in that album that entire album is nice his voice is nice and smooth but that album brought them so much fame that a lot of stuff happening he tells us in interviews and stuff that his voice literally had changed by the next album a little bit got yeah. a, little, a little bit gravelier yeah and I guess that's it, that's uh, an interesting from drinking or from you know all the stuff. Oh. <laughs> but it's amazing. I gotta give Aerosmith credit. I mean, they were one of my favorite bands as a kid. Although when when, they, when I got to see them when I was a kid, they were they were not they were not good live that night. Uh, they were they were pretty hammered. Sound was shit. Um, and then I saw them years later after they got sober during a permanent vacation tour, and they were phenomenal. I mean, they were one of the best live bands ever. So. But, and it was also because I had just seen Queen do Night at the Opera in a theater. And oh my God, I would die. I'd seen Freddie Mercury and the Queen at their at that peak where they were just about to explode in the rest of the world. They had been big in England. You know, Killer Queen was a hit here, but, uh, but Bohemian Rhapsody had just come out. And I, you know, literally the album Night at the Opera had just come out. And I went, my older brother took me to see the show. And it was probably one of the greatest things. Still one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. You know, there's like certain bands like Bowie, The Clash, uh, Queen... All these people that at these shows that I've seen that are just like are on the top of my list. Uh, I mean, and I've seen a lot of shows, but Freddie Mercury and Queen at that period of time was absolutely mind blown. I had nosebleed seats, you know, but nosebleed seats in the Beacon Theater are not bad. It's not like it's not an arena. It's still a theater in New York City, and that show was life changing for me to see Queen at that period of time. It was unbelievable. You know? I'm sad that in my lifetime I've never seen Queen. Like, I... Uh, you mean with Freddie, right? Oh, with Freddie Mercury. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> Paul Rogers and I No, Paul Rogers. Rogers. Anyway... Well, no, no, I, I love Paul Rogers with Bad Company Free, though. Like, yeah. He, he can sing, you know, he was... He's a I'm a Queen person. snob, so I'm like, you know, I, I, I really, I really love... I would have loved to have seen Queen. I mean, David Bowie, Queen, you know, to my... Favorite, you know, artists um, and, and band, you know, and Brian, and just to see Brian May play, and I, I, I mean, I, I, I would, I would have loved to see that band in their like heyday. Honestly, it would have been amazing. Yeah, uh, they were. I saw Queen two years in a row, so I saw them play the Beacon, and a year later, after the Bohemian Rhapsody took off and not down, they could sell off Madison Square Garden. So that was the day at the Racist Tour, the album with Somebody to Love and Tie Your Mother Down. I went to that show and Thin Lizzy opened and they were phenomenal. I love Thin Lizzy. So it was, that was great. But I got, you know, because I lived so close to New York City, we got to see a lot of great shows. And then when the whole punk and new wave era happened, there were great venues in New Jersey that you could go to. You didn't just have to go to New York. We certainly went to CBGB's all the time and went to other clubs. But we also had, you know, uh, the Fastlane and Asbury Park and uh, this world-famous club, City Gardens in Trenton, New Jersey. So there were always venues to go see shows. I was very fortunate. And, um, you know, because I would promote those shows at City Gardens and the Fastlane, it meant that I could always get in for free. The only show that I actually paid for in those years, believe it or not, even though it was college years, was New Order's first ever show in America after Ian Curtis died from Joy Division. Wow. And they, no, but there were no comps for that one. It was, they played, I think they did two shows in a day, one maybe in North Jersey, or New York City, and they did one in the afternoon at Trenton City Gardens, and that was a steep five dollars to see. Uh, so, what was so? What was your favorite, <laughs> favorite New Order, Bernard Summer or Ian Curtis? Well, I mean, it one's Joy Division and one's New Order. 
Yes, but it's kind of like a... What? Well, they're, to me, they're totally two totally different bands. Yeah, they are totally two different yeah. bands. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, there wouldn't be a New Order without Joy Division. You know? No, there wouldn't. But there wouldn't be, I mean, but that's because, but also, besides Ian Curtis, Peter Hook and, yep. and, and Bernard Sumner are such a big part of what that sound was anyway. You yeah. Know? So they took that to New Order. I love New Order and I love, I love Joy Division. They, they're all, it just, they, they always call it newer, I guess they do different things, but Joy Division was different, it was deeper and darker, yeah. and um, something mystifying about it, where where New Order was more, was a bit lighter and dancier. Yeah, and, and I mean, so. the last thing that came out from the original, it was before he died, it was 1980, so, you know, the band was just, you know, would discover the use of electronics and other things, you know, and change New Order over time. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I thought New, New Order were were um, were a better in studio band than live band. Uh, I never got to see Joy Division though, but my friends had tickets for us to see the show that Ian Curtis was supposed to do in New York City at, before he committed. After he committed, so, but it was it happened before. I'm sorry, before he committed suicide, we had tickets because two of my friends uh, who went to school at Columbia University in New York had bought tickets, and when he committed suicide and the show was canceled. They um, traded him back in for uh, their money back. Can you imagine what those tickets would be worth today mm. for the last the show that, that Ian Curtis was supposed to play? But I was supposed to be at that show. Wow. Never, never got to go, uh, of course. But you know, I love I love all that music. There was you know such a that part period of the early nineteen eighties, late seventies into the early eighties was just a, such an incredible time. I actually think 1970, 1980, and you guys can all disagree with me, but I honestly believe it was like the biggest decade of music that we had, um, to me at least, because you had everything come out in that decade. You had, you know, all you, you had all your your uh, bands like uh, ZZ Top and and uh, and even though Fluid Mac technically started in the late 60s, you know, the big heyday was there. You had Billy Joel. Uh, you had Elton John, whose first songs came out in the seventies. You know, you, you then you had disco, right? We had all these rock and things that are happening over here. Then we have disco, and then at some point we start getting punk, and we get like metal, you know. And then at some point we have new wave, and and we have dance, and even like even though with EDM, there were forms of that already back starting in like the late seventies, coming yeah. up with these bands. So for me, kind of had. Um, all these, all these turns, what I call turns of music, happened in like kind of one decade, and even in the decade where all this stuff was still brand new and exciting, and you know, and I missed that opportunity to be really around and you know wait, you know, go and wait. For, I hear my mom tell the stories of us standing in line for ten hours or overnight to go get tickets to Led Zeppelin or something or something crazy. And that's how long you probably would have had to wait. But I mean, Led Zeppelin sixties, but. But I mean, like, you know, long those like... most of the years, yeah, I mean, they, they, it was 69, they, for, first time they toured, but 70. Yeah. Um, you know, 68, 69 was when they were starting out, and then, but, you know, most of their extreme success was in the 70s. Yes, yeah. yes. So, that, I would get to hear all the stories. And your mom told you about, she, she did she wait online for how many hours? 10, or I think it was either 10 or over, it was 10 hours that she waited in line for tickets. I, uh, I remember even being younger. Uh, sometimes you'd have to wait in the, for lot, for hours to see a show. I remember plenty of concerts. I saw New Order when I was a kid. Yeah. And I remember uh, that was that was quite a wait. Yeah. <laughs> My mom went with me, um, but yeah, we had to wait quite a while to get those tickets because it wasn't like, you know, uh, call call. Uh, I mean, I guess there was Ticketmaster. 
It was called Ticketron. Ticketron. Ticketmaster. Yeah, Ticketron. Yeah. And he used to have it in luncheonettes. Run the Jewels has a great shut song that incorporates Ticketron called Ticketron. It's, it's actually called Ticketron. It's a great song by Run the Jewels. Love yeah. it. <laughs> cool. And that's where it comes from. My favorite story that I always tell people about my best Ticketron experience with my friend Greg was we bought tickets to see the police for $2. You know, And it was unbelievable because there was a young Sting and Stuart Copeland and Andy Summers. It was a group of my buddies from high school. I mean, we were juniors, I think, um, and they were playing in a little theater in Philadelphia. And the guy behind the counter goes, Yeah, you better enjoy that show. It's while it lasts. Because this band's going nowhere about the police. And I love that story because the police became one of the biggest bands. Yeah. So we just laughed at that guy. That's amazing. He, was, uh, he, he just didn't have any taste. Or you want to... You know. you yeah. uh, 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 I forgot what I was going to say. Okay, dream interview, alive or dead, one that you wish you could have done or could do, if you still could. Oh, man, well, certainly would be... Um, it would be... Definitely, God, there's a list of them, to be honest with you. I would do <laughs> Buddy Holly, Keith Moon. Ooh. All right. Um, who would be, it'd be amazing? That would have been an interesting interview. <laughs> John Lennon, of course. Of course. Because I never got to interview John. You know, I've interviewed both his sons and his wife with, with Yoko. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, those are three, you know. I never got to interview Phil Linnett from Thin Lizzy either, and I, I was a big fan of his. Um, I mean, there's so many people. I met Marvin Gaye, but I never got to interview him. I met him when I was like, you know, in college mm -hmm. before he passed away. But Marvin Gaye was another guy that I would have loved to have interviewed. I mean, you know, it's it's pretty amazing stuff. Or Marley, you know, never get an interview Marley, but having had my friends from Trinidad in high school whose parents were never there, so they're always partying at their place, and they're from Trinidad, so they brought all these Marley albums over, you know, like the. He turned us on to that. My brother turned me on to reggae. He turned me on to Jimmy Cliff's The Harder They Come soundtrack, and that's one of the greatest records of all time uh, for you know for introducing the West to reggae. But yeah, those are the interviews I wish I'd done. I really do. I mean, right off the top of my head, Buddy Holly, uh, all right, and, and John Lennon and uh, and Keith Moon. Uh, any parting words? Anything for up and coming BJs, DJs, anybody that's well, I just want to say, you know, uh, thank everybody for support. Like I said, it's two-year anniversary of being hit by a car and nearly killed, and the outpouring of support and love during that and during my most recent uh, relapse that I had when I was drinking again during COVID, and now I've got seven months sober. For all the people that, uh, that, that sent their love and support in any way that they did, I, I'm very grateful for that. I wanted to say that. Uh, I do a streaming show that is on Fridays on YouTube.com slash Rolling Live Studios called In a Lonely Place that I started in a lonely place in my living room when I was living by myself uh, during the pandemic and I was in lockdown. I started the show there. And there's different guests on it every week. I mean, uh, tomorrow is Nick Hexham from 311. Um, and it's always different. But, I, you know, I do that. My radio show is called Flashback. It's syndicated around the country. And I'm very grateful to have it. And I love you guys. And I'm really happy All right. to have you. All right. We're going to have so much. Thanks for having me. Yay. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for Thanks joining. Thanks, guys, for joining Thank us. You. Thanks for listening to this Rock and Talk with Matt Pinfeld. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a good review and check out our other episodes. As always, you can find us on social media under at Rock and Cushions, and you can browse our website 
rockingcushions.com to find affordable, trendy slipcovers for all your IKEA furniture. Be sure to follow our channel so you never miss the next Rock and Talk with Michelle Vanderwater.